Hello, I'm Neil Aitchison and welcome to Warwick Podcasts. You join me at the launch of the Equal Pay Archive at Warwick's Modern Record Centre. The archive aims to chart the struggle by women for pay parity with men. With me is Joe Morris, Senior Equality and Employment Rights Officer at the Trade Union Congress, Sue Hastings, an Independent Pay and Employment Advisor, along with one of the leading figures of the trade union movement of recent years, Rodney Bickerstaff, the former General Secretary of the Public Sector Union Unison and Chairman of the Modern Records Centre Advisory Board. And Joe, before we go on to look at the uh, the actual archive itself, perhaps first of all we could uh, discuss about the uh, actual fight for equality of pay between uh, men and women. We're talking here at the opening of the, the Equal Pay Archive. Uh, and what's your feeling uh, today at the, the opening of this archive? Well, at the opening we'll have the premiere showing of a new documentary film called uh, The Story of Equal Pay, a scenes from a turbulent history and um, that's been jointly funded by the TUC and Warwick University and in that we trace back to uh, the late 1800s when um, the pressure for equal pay really began. The first debate on equal pay at the TUC Congress was in 1888. Um, We then pan on through the First World War when uh, the film shows that uh, women were brought into the labour market and bus conductresses in, on the London buses went on strike for equal pay and it then goes moves on to look at the more recent struggles for equal pay and that really concentrates from the late 1960s when the Ford sewing machinists went on strike because their uh, work was not recognised as skilled despite them working with no patterns and having very um, complex hand-eye coordination Um, requirements, they were classified uh, below the um, grading for an unskilled uh, manual worker, male worker, um, such as floor sweepers. And it then moves on to how that um, sort of iconic strike in 1968 um, directly led to the introduction of the Equal Pay Act in 1970, and the deficiencies of that Equal Pay Act, which uh, allowed women to claim equal pay with men who were doing the same or broadly similar work as them. But of course, men and women don't do broadly the similar work. They do very different jobs. We have a high level of occupational segregation in this country. So we then move on to the question of equal pay for work of equal value, which is at the heart of the struggle for equal pay, which still goes on. And we'll come to some of those particular mm. uh, battles. That, uh, but before that, just put it into a, a bit of context uh, for us. I mean, how important has this battle, this fight for, for equal pay between the sexes, how important has that been in the social history of the 20th century, really? Our argument in the lecture that um, I'm going to give with Sue Hastings um, at this uh, launch of the um, Modern Records Centre Equal Pay Archive is that equal pay is a lens through which we can view social and labour history as well as industrial relations because it's profoundly influenced all of those disciplines and it is a defining characteristic of relationships, both social and economic, between men and women. And it defines how we work um, and also how we live our lives in the domestic sphere. In other words, the divisions of labour 
in the home are largely defined by the economic imperatives that men earn more and women earn less. And this fight, and at least the partial success of it, has transformed women's lives. It's transformed women's lives and I think also men's lives because we now have a very different society where um, uh, young women are coming into the labour market um, certainly as well educated and in many cases uh, better educated, better qualified than their, um, their male peer group and they're coming on getting, getting good jobs. The crucial crunch comes when they have babies and this affects both both mothers and fathers because they are trapped if there is no option economic options for them very often except for the woman to either reduce her working time or perhaps reduce her career aspirations and the man tends to supplement the family income by working uh, longer and harder thus excluding himself from the sphere of the family and entrenching the woman more and more in the family and destining her to uh, not only lower pay but also a lower pension and in many cases uh, poverty in old age uh, because she hasn't um, worked um, and, and have an income that's commensurate with her partner and her male pay, peer group. Just dwelling for a moment on the sort of history of it and the sort of general issue then, that uh, uh, what's been the role of trade unions in this uh, struggle for equality then that, uh, and how important do you think it, it's been for the trade union movement to, to try and achieve this? Well, first of all, equal pay is at the heart of the trade union agenda. It is um, a huge remaining injustice that uh, we as trade unions are fighting to um, address. Um, and trade unions have always been behind the fight for equal pay. Right back in the 1880s, um, when uh, motions were going through Congress, um, to these first early strikes, um, which often challenge traditional social norms. Um, so if you take the Ford sewing machinists, the um, T&G supported that, and I often think that the, uh, the, the male um, negotiator for Ford's at the time, Bernie Passingham, was a very brave man because he was challenging um, what were basically male pay structures. And um, I'm quite sure it wasn't an easy ride for him personally among his <laughs> uh, male colleagues, um, although it has to be said that many of those trade unionists were very, very supportive. So our film traces um, the, the way in which um, there were discussions within the trade union movement um, about the concept of the breadwinner wage. Um, was it appropriate, um, as was thought, um, in the post-war period that the assumption was a man should earn a family wage enough to keep his wife and his children and uh, of course what we're seeing now is moving um, more now to um, the notion of um, either um, um, a one and a half model um, of working time or individual earnings, individual responsibility for um, earnings. Trade unions have been absolutely at the forefront of pressing this issue. Trade unions have been behind and have financially backed every single landmark equal value case 
that has been taken. Um, and some of these cases, like the speech therapists, that took 15 years of very costly and very uncertain uh, litigation. And the reason it was costly and uncertain and it was took 15 years was because the government opposed it at every step of the way because of the implications for pay and grading across the NHS. Let's turn to the actual archive itself then, uh, and what is the archive actually going to look at some of these important cases, just uh, these uh, landmark cases, just flag some of those up for us then. Okay, well, first of all, the TUC has set up um, an oral history equal pay archive called Recording Women's Voices, and in that we have got films, uh, filmed interviews of six of the landmark cases which established the principle of equal pay for work of equal value and all of those are on a new uh, union history website which where they can be downloaded and to complement that the Warwick Modern Records Centre has um, agreed to set up um, an equal pay archive within the um, MRC which will collect together the papers of the many lawyers, negotiators from both the trade union and the employer's side, uh, the equal pay experts who have uh, worked on uh, job evaluation schemes, and collect their papers so that we have a hard copy record of how the grading and pay structures uh, in industrial relations have changed in the last 40 years. Tell us a little bit about those landmark cases right, right. then that they, they're, they're included in all okay, that. Okay, well, the, the first deposit uh, that is going to be made at the um, uh, Modern Records Centre um, archive is by Sue Hastings, and she has been involved in many of the um, particularly public sector um, pay and grading reviews, uh, such as uh, the NHS Agenda for Change. So those papers will be absolutely fascinating uh, because they'll look at what the factors are in a job evaluation uh, scheme, how they've changed uh, from um, 30 years ago. We will also have papers from the lawyers who are involved in the test cases and uh, we're going out to them very shortly to bring those in and so we want to have as complete a record as possible of both the legal process but also the collective bargaining uh, process because this was a two-tier um, operation. And what sort of cases were those involved? Well, you talk about the, the, the Ford machinists. Let's talk about the six cases where we have filmed interviews. Um, the first and oldest case, and in fact it's the only of um, one of the cases that isn't a legal case, were the Ford sewing machinists. And they went out on strike because they were um, graded below the unskilled male rate. And they were arguing that they were skilled workers, which indeed they were. And it took them from 1968 to 1984 to get that skilled grade and to be paid according to that. What that strike did was to provoke the Equal Pay Act, because Barbara Castle, who was then the Minister of Labour and significantly a woman, understood these issues and she persuaded her male colleagues that uh, there needed to be an equal pair. So that's the first case. The rest of the cases have all been taken on the basis of the equal pay for equal work of equal value amendment in 1984. 
that was a very complex piece of legislation that was reluctantly introduced by the Thatcher government because there had been a European court uh, ruling. And so it was only made real in the workplace by using it to a, a, as a test case strategy. The first case that was taken um, under that amendment was Julie Haywood, who was a, um, a chef at Camolaird Shipyard in Liverpool. And she had um, been an apprentice, um, gone right through her apprenticeship um, alongside young men who were doing their apprenticeships in um, thermal heating engineering, um, painting and uh, plumbing. And when they'd got their qualification, those young men became craft workers and were paid accordingly. But Julie, as a qualified chef, was not designated the role of craft worker and was paid considerably less. And so her, she couldn't take a case under the old Equal Pay Act because her job was different from the men, but she could take a case under the new Equal Value Amendment. And she had to prove that the demands of her job were as demanding as the demands of the young men's jobs. And you have a fascinating insight into how this worked, how the legal process worked, but also the support of her male comparators. Uh, they'd all been, basically, they were all mates, they're all members of trade the same trade union, and they supported her claim. And um, it took a very long time, and it was very hard fought by Camel Laird, who didn't take it seriously at first. They thought it was a ridiculous idea. But um, finally, uh, Julie won, and she won um, a upgrading. And that was the very first case. We then moved on to um, the next uh, series of cases, which was in the hull fish packing industry. And uh, there was a whole series of cases taken um, where fish packers, who were women, compared themselves to fish filleters and again successfully. We then have a film about um, hospital cleaners in Belfast who in 1985 took a case and they compared their work to um, hospital grounds maintenance staff and porters. That was an important case because at the time the notion that cleaners were anything but unskilled workers was unthinkable and it was these women and their union which was NUPI um, raised the issue of their responsibility for health and hygiene and life itself uh, because they were responsible for cleaning operating theatres and uh, wards. Then we go on to another health service case um, which unlike all the other legal cases were a group of white collar workers who were speech therapists and they were covered by a different collective bargaining system to their male comparators who were hospital pharmacists. And uh, the result was that the speech therapists earned less and were graded on a lower grade than the, the pharmacist who were predominantly male. And this case was the longest running of the cases. It took 15 years, it went right up to the European Court of Justice. And the reason that it was so important um, was not only that it um, gained recognition for a, an important group of professional workers, but that, together with some of the other cases in the health service, gave rise to the massive exercise of regrading 
and uh, a grading review which we now know of as the NHS Agenda for Change. The final case was the Yorkshire dinner ladies who um, had equal pay with uh, male manual workers in the uh, local authority in North Yorkshire. Uh, and then when um, the services were contracted out, uh, they, the, the dinner ladies, lost their sick pay, their holiday entitlements um, and a number of other terms and conditions, which meant that their terms and conditions were considerably inferior to the male manual workers with whom they had been equal. So they took a case um, establishing their right for equal treatment. So those are the six cases and there are important industrial relations and social issues that come out of each of those cases. And what sort of resource do you hope this is going to be, These that this joint of film and uh, paper archive that we're going to create here? What I hope is that it will encourage more research into the topic. And uh, the films are a fantastic resource. We have 10-minute um, edited films which um, can be easily viewed. But we also... Uh, and these are sort of films of the, the women these involved in each yes. of these industries? Yes, and talk, the women themselves talking about their case, uh, their trade union reps very often talking about the case and how they managed it. And um, we have some of the top employment lawyers in the country who were representing the women talking about the significance of the case. So we have, for example, Lord Lester speaking about the, um, uh, um, the speech therapist case. So students, for example, could use this as primary research material to find out more about the world of work um, in that particular sector um, and or about how the law um, operated for that particular case. Along with the, the paper archive. Uh, exactly. So what we hope is that the paper archive that we um, um, we already have from Sue Hastings and that we'll be getting in from uh, lawyers will complement that and give us a very detailed picture of this sort of legal test case strategy and the arguments that were made. Um, and also the, the way that job evaluation has changed. I hope it's going to be a resource that's going to be used in all sorts of different ways at Warwick and at other universities. There's been huge enthusiasm for it. And I hope in doing that, it will raise um, younger people's um, awareness of the um, presence of the pay gap, gender pay gap, because I think uh, many people think that equal pay, it's been sorted, it's done. And it's not done. Uh, women still earn 17% per hour less than men on an average salary of £23,000 a year. That's £4,000 a year less. When women um, have uh, children, they very often start to work part-time and research shows that they are, their skills are, are downsized and they work in jobs which are below their skill potential. That's an enormous economic waste of um, the resources that uh, have been put into uh, training, training women. So I hope there'll be a much better understanding of not only the reality of the gender pay gap and the injustice of the pay gap, but also of the long-term economic consequences of having a pay gap. And also 
I would argue, long-term social consequences, not just for women, but also from men, because those men um, who are trapped in long hours working are just as oppressed as women who are trapped in short hours, low-paid work, um, because those men um, are saying to us, many, uh, they're saying to us that they want to be able to have time with their families, but they can't because economic imperatives mean that they have to keep working and economic imperatives mean that their, their partners have um, downsized in some way. So this gender um, differentiation doesn't make any economic sense. We should have more equality both at work and at home where we have a more of a even distribution between um, uh, men and women in terms of household work and that can then carry on realistically over into the uh, workplace. And, and Sue Hastings, just uh, turning to you then, you're actually going to deposit uh, papers in the Equal Pay Archive. Just describe to us first of all uh, what it is you're actually going to give over to the, to the archive. Um, the papers consist of records of individual equal pay cases that I've been involved in and all the paperwork associated with those. And then separately, um, a large number of files that relate to grading and pay structure reviews that have an equality element to them. And these papers involve what? These are all the sort of legal papers involved in these landmark cases, are they? Yes, the, um, I think one of the reasons why um, there was anxiety to uh, create an equal pay archive was because it became apparent that a lot of the records were being destroyed. Um, and some of the main landmark cases, it has proved impossible to identify um, the papers that go with them. Um, as I have kept all the papers that I, with, of the cases that I'd been associated with, um, it's clearly um, in the interests of the future for people to be able to get access to, to that paperwork. So the Equal Pay case files consist of everything that came to me as part of the case, which will be a combination of original application forms, employers, paperwork, uh, reports that I wrote, notes of interviews with um, equal pay claimants and comparators, and then probably the final decision in the, in the case. And what sort of insight do you think uh, those sort of papers and that work will give to these these particular cases? I think they make them um, real and, and human. Uh, sometimes I look at uh, equal pay records, the published equal pay records, and they're very dry. Um, they say what the lawyers thought at the end of the day and what the decision was, but you don't get any of the background, um, what the jobs actually were, why the women got involved in the equal pay case, um, how the comparators became involved, and that sort of information is often available in the sort of files that, that, I, that I have. And just give us a bit of an insight into that, and how sort of human do they do they get? Sometimes the um, the reasons for people taking equal pay cases are very interesting. Um, one of the the early cases, Haywood um, versus Camel Laird, Julie Haywood got involved in the case because she didn't get the same pay increase at the end of her apprenticeship training as her comparators did, the craft workers. And that was because she was not deemed to be a craft worker, even though she'd completed her city and guilds training in catering. 
Um, and that was what spurred her into action. She went to her union rep and the union rep took up the case and it became the first land, landmark, landmark case. Um, and others come about because uh, somebody said or, or did something. I'm dealing with a case at the moment um, where the records are not, not yet in the, in the archive, um, where the claimant um, feels very strongly um, that she does the same work and at the same level as her comparators in a, uh, a local authority, but she's not treated as a chief, a chief officer and she feels very deeply that that's, that's wrong and that's what set her off on, on pursuing an equal pay case at a level where that's quite difficult to do because she is a senior manager and senior managers don't normally take um, equal, equal pay cases. So every case has its story behind it like that. And uh, you were involved in a number of the, the landmark cases that uh, are being sort of flagged up, certainly in the, the films in this yes. uh, archive. Yes. Uh, I mean, what was that like uh, to be involved in those cases to be part of sort of social history, I suppose? Um, I think at the time you don't realise that they're going to be a landmark case. I've been involved in, well, probably now hundreds of equal pay cases, mm. and it's not apparent at the time that you're working on them that this is going to be uh, one that will change the law. So they don't feel any different from any other equal equal pay case, except I think perhaps the Ford sewing machinist, because that um, went to an arbitration panel outside the legal procedure, um, and it was a very high-profile case, so it was probably apparent all the way uh, along that, that that was going to have significance whichever whichever way it went um, and had particular significance because um, the panel um, unanimously found in favor of the of the Ford sewing machinists so they they were upgraded as a as a result of it. It must be particularly gratifying when you get a successful outcome like that after uh, many years of, hard, uh, of working. Hard work. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. And some of them do take a very long time. Um, the speech therapist case, I became involved not right at the beginning, but in about 1988. And the final settlements were only reached in 2000. So uh, not full time, but on and off over a 12 year period. Um, I was involved in doing work on those on those cases. And some of it was intensive. Um, batches of work and then there would be a lull while uh, people were waiting for court hearings or other things to uh, to happen. And what do you hope is going to be the, uh, the effect of uh, and benefit of putting these papers into the, the archive then? Oh I very much hope that people will be able to research a realistic picture of the development of the equal pay law in this in this country. Um, I think those with different perspectives come with biases um, and it's important that the original materials are there so that people can get an objective view of what actually ha has happened. What are your biggest stuff then? Uh, what uh, addition do you hope uh, this Equal Pay Archive is going to be to the, the Modern Records Centre here? Well, certainly I think that uh, not just women uh, in general, but women in particular will want to get more involved with this collection here. I mean, we've always got the problem, as all archive collections have, of getting out the information about what's here. I think the news as it gets out and about, amongst trade unions in particular, um, but the general public, hopefully, over the weeks, months, years ahead, that there is this resource here, uh, will in fact 
make a lot of people think, ah, oh, we want to look at that. We know it's, there's lots and lots of feisty young women, as we always know, who fought over the centuries to say, how come we get this little and you men get all that? This has been going on for uh, centuries, literally centuries. You know, equal uh, pay for work of equal value. Uh, I think it will also be useful for trade unions generally, who very often have been accused of being uh, Northern Hemisphere, white, male, macho. Uh, and they ought to be spreading out the information about the MRC collection here and saying, look, uh, this is another way that you can, if you want, make amends to what people have thought about you in the past. And how important has this uh, fight, this battle for equality between pay, been in trade union history? Oh, it's, do you been, think? it's been huge. It's been huge. I mean, it's always been the case, uh, unfortunately, that uh, women's paid work has always been lower paid work, apart from the occasional story you hear about the City of London. Uh, but by and large, you know the truth of the situation. And so there's there always always been women there fighting the fight. It was the same, of course, in getting the vote, as you know. Everybody knows about that. They don't necessarily know about the fight to get equal pay for work of equal value. The histories of lots of trade unions, particularly in the manual field, uh, would not be complete without a discussion and debate and analysis of what happened to cleaners in particular. You know, every few years, big argument in Parliament. You've got all those people on their plush, plush green benches uh, doing not too badly, and yet you've got cleaners who are out on strike because they're getting paid next to nothing, although they're cleaning up after them. Now, it's not just about cleaners, but the vast majority will be women cleaners. Uh, catering jobs, um, many of the public service uh, jobs, home uh, helpers and things of this nature, massively important. And of course, their work has been deemed, well, it's secondary. So I think it'd be a great, uh, great addition. How sort of influential has that struggle then been on the sort of social history of the last century or so then? What, what sort of role has it played there? Well, it's been, it's been as big as any you know, I mean, obviously there have been fights for uh, statutory national minimum wage, uh, which I and others were involved in, and that was over a century to get that. Uh, and uh, we all thought about uh, in the early 70s that we'd turned the corner on equal pay. Uh, but, of course, that wasn't the case. And even today, uh, that struggle continues. So it does, uh, it sort of uh, energises lots and lots of uh, women and lots of men increasingly and so it ought to do because they're saying look where is this even playing field and why is it done like this well it should be better than this and so the resource to go back and use that information for speeches for articles uh, for in fact driving the next generation on to try and complete the job and then when it's completed if we ever got to that day when you know equality was there to hold it there because, of course, there will be people who would always want to return to what it was, you know, 50, 70, 90 years ago. And what's your sort of memory, your sort of involvement in, uh, in some of these? Because uh, some of the landmark cases were in the, the health service, weren't they? That, uh, they were in your... the health service and in the school meal service, of course. Uh, and generally speaking now, even now, there are major, major debates about equal pay in the public sector in particular, we want it built into men and women's hearts and minds that it's the job and not the gender of the person who's doing the job. And uh, we've got to work on that. So I think it's an excellent, uh, excellent addition. 
And what's your feeling about that, that uh, even sort of 30, 40 years after this all started, that we're still trying to uh, fight for equality? That, uh, uh, what's your feeling about sort of the, the trade unions sort of involvement in that? Is, has that been a, a failing of the trade union uh, movement or, or a failure okay, two, of, the, of the employers? Two points um, on this. Uh, first point is it's not just over thir- 30 or 40 years. That's in the modern time. And the fight has been going on literally, as I said before, for centuries. I mean, there have been people who have said this should not be so. So it's a long, long fight, although it's not yet finished. Secondly, trade unions and employers. Well, certainly employers uh, are at fault. Why should they not pay um, what ought to be paid? Trade unions, well, trade unions are always uh, being told that they haven't done enough and they could have done more. And it is an endless battle. And uh, certainly I'm not going to chastise trade unions for not having achieved everything. I wanted to achieve a lot more myself on all sorts of fronts. Um, and I don't want to be whipped or hanged and drawn and quartered because we didn't achieve it. Well, I do say it's an ongoing task. And I think the collection will, um, especially if it builds, as I think it probably will, if this becomes a sort of centre of excellence, as, as it were, for this particular subject and topic, uh, I think it will be itself useful in getting to the day when we get equal pay for all.